Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is committed to bringing you the ad-free, in-depth news you rely on. Our daily global news hour is not funded by corporations or the government. We don't run ads or have a paywall. We rely on you to make our daily news hour possible. Please donate $5, $10, or any amount at democracynow.org today to support our independent reporting. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! We believe there is a space and an opportunity here to have a bipartisan, reasonable, reasonable budget agreement that, again, the House and the Senate uh, can vote on and that we can get the business of the American people done. Negotiations are continuing in Washington over raising the debt ceiling in order to prevent the United States from defaulting on its debt for the first time in history. We'll talk to economist Jeffrey Sachs about America's wars and the U.S. debt crisis. Then, blood on his hands. We look at a shocking new investigation by Nick Terse of The Intercept. I spoke with more than 75 Cambodian witnesses and survivors of U.S. military attacks. And they revealed that Henry Kissinger is responsible for more civilian deaths in Cambodia than was previously known. As Henry Kissinger turns 100 years old Saturday, we'll also speak to Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Greg Grandin, author of the book Kissinger's Shadow. His latest article headlined Henry Kissinger, a war criminal still at large at 100. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In South Carolina, Republican lawmakers have approved legislation banning abortions after just six weeks of pregnancy. The bill now heads to Republican Governor Henry McMaster, who says he'll sign it into law as soon as possible. The measure includes limited exceptions for fatal fetal anomalies, the patient's life and health and rape and incest survivors who can seek an abortion up to 12 weeks of pregnancy. The latter would require doctors to report the procedure to law enforcement. The bill passed after a filibuster led by five women state senators, including three Republicans, failed to block it. U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy issued an advisory warning of social media's profound risk of harm for young people and calling for immediate action from lawmakers, tech companies and parents to keep kids safe. An estimated 95 percent of 13- to 17-year-olds are on social media. Those who are on it over three hours per day face two times the risk of depression and anxiety. Additionally, social media could overstimulate the brain in ways similar to addiction, as well as cause sleep and attention issues. Murthy said young people's brains are especially vulnerable to the detrimental effects of peer pressure and constant comparison. Lawmakers have passed a number of bills recently to address child sexual exploitation online while other measures around parental consent, age verification processes and other safety procedures are being discussed. Murthy and other health experts also acknowledge social media can help young people who feel isolated or ostracized be more connected to a larger community and mental health resources. 
Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is announcing his 2024 presidential bid today during a Twitter Spaces live stream with Elon Musk. David Sachs, Republican donor and ally of both DeSantis and Musk, is set to moderate the event. DeSantis has been pulling behind Donald Trump thus far, as rights groups warn of a DeSantis presidency amidst his mounting attacks on LGBTQ people, black people, reproductive rights and immigrants in Florida. In related news, a Florida elementary school in Miami-Dade County has banned Amanda Gorman's poem, The Hills We Climb, which she read to widespread acclaim at President Biden's inauguration. The ban came after a complaint from one parent. More than 160 doctors at Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, New York, are on a five-day strike, citing unequal pay with their counterparts. First-year residents in Elmhurst earn nearly $7,000 less than first-year residents at Mount Sinai Hospital on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It's the first strike by doctors in New York City since 1990. New York City Council Member Jen Gutierrez, herself born at Elmhurst Hospital, spoke about the issues faced by Elmhurst physicians during a recent council meeting. My argument about Elmhurst Hospital, it's an H&H hospital serving majority uh, immigrant community. Chair Narcisse worked at Elmhurst Hospital yes, she did. serving immigrants. And Elmhurst Hospital has a very unique program in that the majority of the residents are international. Yeah. So what I am trying to uplift is, is the blatant connection of serving immigrant communities by, by immigrant physicians on the level of care that they're receiving to do their job. And we really need to ring the alarm around equity. In more labor news, the union representing some 1,500 members of the New York Times newsroom has reached a tentative agreement with the newspaper after over two years of negotiations. The deal, which the New York Times Guild called groundbreaking, would grant an immediate pay raise of up to 12.5 percent for the lowest paid workers and raise the minimum salary to $65,000. An investigation led by Illinois Attorney General has found hundreds of Catholic Church clergy sexually abused nearly 2,000 children between 1950 and 2019, a number of cases far higher than the Church had publicly disclosed. Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul released the findings Tuesday, acknowledging the statute of limitations in many of those cases has expired. The probe began in 2018, culminating in a report that's nearly 700 pages long, detailing how 450 clerics in Illinois six dioceses, including the prominent Archdiocese of Chicago, abused hundreds of children with impunity for the past 70 years. The report also accuses Catholic leaders of covering up the abuse. Meta the parent company of Facebook and Instagram will sell the gift-sharing website Giphy to Shutterstock for $53 million at a loss of over $260 million after an order by British antitrust regulators. In other antitrust news, a federal judge has ordered American Airlines and JetBlue to end their partnership in the Northeast, siding with the Justice Department, which argued the alliance would reduce competition and lead to higher costs for travelers. The Justice Department also has a pending anti-monopoly suit against the $3.8 billion merger of JetBlue and fellow budget carrier Spirit Airlines. In Australia, family members and supporters of Julian Assange rallied in Sydney as they say momentum to free the jailed WikiLeaks founder is at its peak. It's about Julian Assange, of course, but it's also about press freedom, all our freedoms, and the fact that he exposed a crime that I was horrified about, and he's the one in trouble, he's the one imprisoned, and yet he exposed a crime, a war crime, which no one's done anything about. 
Today's action in Sydney was supposed to coincide with a visit from President Biden for a Quad Alliance meeting with leaders from India, Japan and Australia, but Biden canceled his trip amidst ongoing negotiations over the debt ceiling. Julian Assange's wife, Stella, called on Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to do more to secure the release of her husband, an Australian national, as his health rapidly deteriorates inside London's Belmarsh prison, where he awaits possible extradition to the U.S. to face espionage and hacking charges facing up to 175 years in prison if convicted. Albanese has said he's doing everything he can, while a group of Australian lawmakers recently met with U.S. Ambassador Carolyn Kennedy to push for Assange's release. China and Saudi Arabia have boycotted G20 meetings held by host country India in the disputed and militarily occupied Kashmir region. In 2019, the Indian government stripped the Muslim-majority region of its semi-autonomous status as it seeks to fully bring it under Indian rule. Hundreds of people rallied earlier this week in Pakistan-administered Kashmir. Pakistan's foreign minister, Bilawal Bhutto Zardari, visited the region and addressed the Legislative Assembly. India is misusing its position as chair of the G20, a forum created to address global financial and economic issues with utter disregard for the Security Council resolution, the UN Charter and its principle. Press freedom groups have also called out India's crackdown on journalists in Kashmir. A new study warns the Earth is entering its sixth mass extinction due to the massive global loss of biodiversity triggered by human activity. The report, written by researchers at Queen's University Belfast in Northern Ireland, says nearly half the planet's animal species are now in decline, but that unlike past mass extinctions, the present one has been entirely caused by humans. In more climate news, countries in the Middle East and across the Gulf region are more vulnerable to unprecedented extreme heat due to a worsening climate catastrophe. That's according to new research published by the Nature Sustainability Journal, which also says poorer communities are particularly at risk. Meanwhile, another study warns nearly half the population of Phoenix, Arizona, would be in need of immediate medical attention for heat stroke or other heat-related illnesses if a heat wave coincides with a power blackout spanning multiple days. Other cities would also be at risk, as blackouts nationwide have more than doubled since 2015, while heat waves and extreme weather patterns intensify due to climate change. Over 130 U.S. lawmakers and members of the European Parliament have sent a joint letter to President Biden, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, and U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, demanding the removal of Sultan Ahmed al-Jaber, the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, as president of the upcoming U.N. Climate Summit, COP28. The lawmakers, which include Senators Ed Markey and Bernie Sanders, say in the letter, quote, since at least the 1960s, the fossil fuel industry has known about the dangers of climate change posed by its products and, rather than supporting a transition to a clean energy future, has instead chosen to promote climate denial and spend millions of dollars to spread disinformation, they wrote. Meanwhile, climate activists are ramping up acts of civil disobedience and direct action to draw attention to the hastening crisis. In Britain, the group Fossil Free London disrupted Shell's annual shareholder meeting Tuesday, storming the stage and triggering chaotic scenes as protesters confronted investors of the oil giant. Congratulate yourselves for record-breaking profits, which lead to record-breaking floods, droughts, 
and heat waves. Welcome to Shell, where you are complicit in the destruction of people's homes, livelihoods, and lives. Welcome to hell. But I, ladies and gentlemen, I refuse to accept your hell on earth. This week, the People's Health Tribunal found Shell and Total Oil Companies guilty of genocide and ecocide in communities in South Africa, Nigeria, Mozambique, and Uganda. This comes as Just Stop Oil activists have been leading slow marches on London's major streets and bridges, disrupting traffic. In Italy, climate activists with last generation douse themselves in the street in front of Rome's Senate building in mud as the death toll from last week's record-breaking floods in northern Italy has risen to 15. In Geneva, Switzerland, some 100 protesters demanding a ban on private jets descended on the international airport, blocking entry to an aircraft exhibition. A Greenpeace campaigner said there was a recent rise of 64 percent in private jet flights in Europe. The climate crisis is escalating every day. We see extreme weather, even in Europe. We had droughts all winter long. Now summer storms and uh, spring storms are starting. And at the same time, a super rich, very small elite keeps polluting as if there is no tomorrow. This needs to stop. In related news, France has enacted its ban on domestic short-haul flights between many major cities. The move, an effort to rein in carbon emissions, will apply to routes where train alternatives exist. And Typhoon Mawar made landfall on Guam with the force of a Category 4 hurricane, the strongest storm to hit the U.S. territory in decades. Most of Guam lost power earlier today as extreme winds and torrential rain hit the island, while meteorologists have warned of life-threatening storm surges. Authorities ordered residents in coastal regions to evacuate, with some shelters already reporting they're at capacity. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, economist Jeffrey Sachs on America's wars and the U.S. debt crisis. Stay with us. The wrong man going at zero. It's a part of the plan. We've all heard enough of your brainwash Climate protesters singing Go to Hell Shell, both outside and inside the oil giant's annual shareholder meeting in London. And those are some of the headlines. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez. Juan, congratulations on the graduation of your daughter, Gabriela. Uh, thanks, Amy. And great to be back after a few weeks away. Welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. 
Well, negotiations are continuing in Washington, D.C., over raising the debt ceiling. The United States faces a default on its debt in early June if a deal is not reached between the White House and Congress. On Tuesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy privately told Republican lawmakers he was, quote, nowhere close to an agreement with the White House. McCarthy and President Biden had met at the White House Monday after Biden cut short his trip to Asia. McCarthy's pushing for sweeping budget cuts and new work requirements for recipients of government programs, including Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid and SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. The Republicans, however, are not proposing cuts to one of the biggest drivers of the nation's debt, the massive U.S. military budget. According to the Cost of War Project of Brown University, U.S. wars since the September 11th attacks have cost over $8 trillion. A separate report by the group estimates 4.6 million people have died since 9-11 as a result of the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Syria, Yemen, Libya and Somalia. And over the past 16 months, Congress has approved more than $113 billion for Ukraine following Russia's invasion. We're joined now by the economist Jeffrey Sachs. He's the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, president of the U.N. Sustainable Development Solutions Network, has served as advisor to three U.N. secretaries general, currently serves as a sustainable development solutions advocate under Secretary General Antonio Guterres. He recently wrote an article headlined America's Wars and the U.S. Debt Crisis. Professor Sachs, welcome back to Democracy Now! Well, why don't you lay it out for us? Talk about what's happening in Washington, the historic possibility that um, the U.S. could renege on the—could possibly not lift that debt ceiling, um, and what that means, and how that fits into the budget that Republicans want cut and the budgets they not only want not to cut, but to increase. Well, uh, great to be with you. Uh, you know, it, it is uh, startling that since— uh, the year 2000, the debt that the U.S. government owes to the public has gone from about 35 uh, percent of our national income to nearly 100 percent of our national income or GDP. And that has been uh, dramatic because we have been engaged in nonstop wars uh, literally since uh, the start of this new century, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, uh, Yemen, uh, and now Ukraine. And we have spent a fortune, but no president has said to us, this, these wars are so important that we should pay taxes. Uh, they've just put it on the borrowing. Uh, and as that Watson Institute study has shown and that you cited, the one at Brown University, uh, these wars have cost us around $8 trillion. That's direct military outlays. That's ancillary costs. That's the veterans' medical expenses. This has been a very significant proportion of the rise of this debt. Another significant proportion was the financial sector, the Wall Street bailout in 2008, uh, and the pandemic costs. But the wars have been a huge deal. And it's bipartisan. Uh, it, this isn't Republicans or Democrats. Neither party wants to talk about the elephant in the room, which is that we are currently at an incredibly destructive, disastrous, and I would say avoidable war. The 
toll is rising, of course, in destruction and human lives, but also in outlays. You mentioned the 113 billion, and there's more to come if this administration uh, gets its way. They're not talking about this in these negotiations. They're talking about cutting help for the for the poorest people in this country and to continue the warmongering and feeding the military industrial complex. That That's why I wrote the article, because it's shocking. It's both parties that are not talking about the real issue here. And Jeffrey Sachs, if you could talk as well, you talk about these as wars of choice, uh, what you mean by that, and also the issue of the uh, the pressure now to modern, quote, modernize the U.S. military uh, to face potential conflicts with China uh, as another uh, strategic uh, uh, plan that will result in more uh, more military spending in the future. These are not only wars of choice, the ones that I mentioned, they are wars of lies because we've never been told the truth about what these fights are about, why we're doing it. Of course, Iraq famously was on completely phony pretenses, but that's not the only one. All of them have been based on lies. When it comes to Ukraine, we knew, our diplomats knew and warned that the continued pressure by the military industrial complex to expand NATO to Ukraine would provoke war. But they never told the American people that. They never explained it. And till this day, they haven't explained what this war is really about. You think about Libya, again, lies, no explanation, violation of the UN Security Council. You think about Syria, (laughs) not only uh, was the whole Syrian effort, a lie of the United States. It's never even been explained to the American people that this was an operation that President Obama ordered the CIA to overthrow the Syrian government. It failed, but it was extremely costly and destructive. So these have been wars of choice and wars of lies. They are pushed by the military industrial complex. They are pushed by neoconservatives in both parties. Now we have new drumbeats of war, not only as as if Ukraine was not devastating and threatening enough with nuclear annihilation. And uh, now we're talking uh, war with China. Unimaginable. It it could end the world. Uh, And yet this is normal discourse in in what passes for grown up discussion in Washington, which is not grown up at all, in my opinion. And I wanted to ask you, you mentioned Ukraine. You've you've written often about this whole way that the the American top officials in the U.S. government, as well as the media, talk about the Ukraine war and Russia's entry invasion as unprovoked. This whole issue of being an unprovoked war. I, I noted that the New York Times has used the word unprovoked uh, regarding this invasion 26 times in its editorials, its opinion columns, and its invited guest op-eds. They don't talk about the truth, which is that our own diplomats, I'm talking about U.S. diplomats, including CIA Director William Burns, who wrote a, a memo that was released by WikiLeaks in 2008, Uh, His 2008 memo said this is existential from Russia's point of view. Uh, If 
we continue to push NATO enlargement to Ukraine, this could have absolutely dire consequences. Our diplomats have known this all along, but it's been the politicians, it's been the military industrial complex, it's been the big companies that have been championing NATO enlargement. That's a lot of weapon sales if you if you do that. Even though the risks are completely understood inside the government by serious people, they're just not heeded. And this has been true about Ukraine all along. And up until the end of 2021, Vladimir Putin put on the table a draft U.S.-Russia security agreement that was based on don't expand NATO to Ukraine. And that has been Russia's refrain for 30 years. And yet we don't heed it. And now we're 113 billion into this. It is horrible for Ukraine. We've trapped yet another country uh, in the middle of our lobbying campaigns because this isn't going to work out well for Ukraine. It's a disaster. It's like how it worked out for Afghanistan. So this is what's really going on. And I wish that the New York Times would carry some truth in this to explain what this is really about. Well, Jeffrey Sachs, you also have been critical of Russia's brutal invasion. And I'm wondering how you see this ending now. And also, as we started, um, if you could talk about how you see this debate on lifting the debt ceiling ending. Well, it, 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 this war is going very badly. Uh, there were tens of thousands of deaths in this uh, Bakhmut uh, battle just now that uh, Russia uh, has won and Ukraine has lost. And, and the estimates are that just this one narrow battle cost billions and billions of dollars, not to mention the disaster of how many deaths. So they're running through money like there is no tomorrow. And if we're not careful, there will be no tomorrow. We need to negotiate a stop to this war, whether it's an armistice or a real peace agreement. That is what China's saying. That's what Brazil is saying. That's what South Africa is saying. That's what India is saying. Major countries around the world that aren't part of this NATO-Russia conflict are saying stop before this completely engulfs the whole world, which it is at risk of doing. So I think that Moving to negotiations now, whether it's stopping the fighting and freezing the lines, whether it is really a peace agreement based on Russia leaves and NATO doesn't go in. This has been the core issue from the very beginning. This is feasible and the world is demanding it outside of this so-called Western, what's really NATO and U.S. allied world versus Russia. So that, I think, is how we could spare lives, save the world, and uh, help the budget, by the way. When it comes to these negotiations on the debt ceiling, I really hope that these negotiators face up to the fact that our military budget, which is 40% of worldwide military spending, is brought dramatically under control because that's really how to save money. We are 40% of the world total military spending right now and more than the next 10 countries combined. 
We've got to get this military industrial lobby under control, but it's hard to do because it's a bipartisan affair. Uh, the Congress uh, in, and, and the White House on both sides is beholden to this all seemingly all powerful lobby. But this all powerful lobby is driving us to ruin. And Jeff Sachs, I have one final question about the uh, uh, both the, the wars in Afghanistan that the United States, uh, where the United States backed the Mujahideen forces against uh, when the uh, Afghanistan was uh, occupied by the Soviet army. Uh, many of those guerrillas that uh, the U.S. backed ended up returning to their Arab and African countries and became the basis of jihadist groups like al-Qaeda. There was the unexpected blowback of that U.S. support of that war in Afghanistan. Are we potentially seeing a similar blowback from the war in Ukraine, which has been uh, a country that's become a magnet even before the Russian invasion for neo-Nazi and ultra-right groups from Europe and even the U.S.? Could these foreign fighters now battling in uh, uh, Russia and Ukraine become a danger to European democracies in the future? Uh, of, of course, and it's a very uh, well put Point, but I would say something even more stunning about this. It used to be said for decades uh, that uh, the U.S. backed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan uh, to confront the Soviets who had invaded Afghanistan. But Zbig Brzezinski let us know the truth a few years ago before he passed away. Uh, it, and that was that the U.S. supported the Mujahideen first as bait to induce the Soviet Union to invade. We started it. We started arming an insurrection to help pull the Soviet Union into an invasion in Afghanistan. It's shocking in its cynicism. And it left that country at nonstop war and destruction from 1979 until today, a completely ruined, wrecked, hunger-ridden, famine-ridden society more than 40 years because the U.S. was playing a covert game with all the backlash that you note rightly, uh, that it created al-Qaeda. It created so many disasters down the road, but it started as a great game, as if this were a game. Jeffrey Saxon, thank you for being with us, director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, president of the U.N. Sustainable Development Solutions Network. We'll link to his recent pieces, America's Wars and the U.S. Debt Crisis and the War in Ukraine Was Provoked and Why That Matters to Achieve Peace. Next up, as Henry Kissinger turns 100 years old, some say he is a war criminal still at large. We'll speak with Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Greg Grandin, author of the book Kissinger's Shadow. And we'll talk to Nick Terse, who's just released a stunning series of pieces in The Intercept about the U.S. secret bombing of Cambodia and Henry Kissinger's role in it. Back in 30 seconds. ตอนเรียมบองเพียงตามจิตรานคายฉน้ำบองมาหาน
Please Take Care of My Mother by Bhante Ampil Band, which formed in the Cambodian refugee camp of Ampil near the Thai border. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Saturday will be the 100th birthday of Henry Kissinger. He served as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State in the Nixon and Ford administrations. Today, we look at Kissinger's ongoing influence on the national security state as the United States engages in declared and undeclared wars around the world. Human rights advocates consider Kissinger a war criminal who has escaped accountability. We begin with a damning new investigation by The Intercept on the secret U.S. bombing of Cambodia that killed as many as 150,000 civilians that Kissinger authorized during the U.S. war in Vietnam. Reporter Nick Terse has revealed unreported mass killings after examining formerly classified U.S. military documents and traveling to 12 remote Cambodian villages to interview more than 75 witnesses and survivors of the U.S. attacks. With this new piece, Nick Terse also publishes transcripts of Kissinger's phone calls that show his key role in Cambodia and CIA records connecting Kissinger's actions to the growth of Cambodia's Khmer Rouge, the regime that massacred two million people from 1975 to 1979. Nick Terse is a contributing writer for The Intercept. His books include Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam. His new story is headlined Blood on His Hands, Survival Survivors of Kissinger's secret war in Cambodia reveal unreported mass killings. Nick Terse, welcome back to Democracy Now! Why don't you. you lay out the scope of your investigation and its most stunning conclusions, what you were most shocked by in this extensive report? Thank you so much for having me on. You know, I think the, the key takeaway of, uh, of this package of articles is that Henry Kissinger is responsible for more civilian deaths in Cambodia than was previously known, uh, according to uh, this exclusive archive of U.S. military documents that I assembled and also interviews with uh, Cambodian witnesses and survivors, as well as uh, Americans who, who witnessed or took part in uh, these attacks. Uh, the archive offers uh, previously unpublished, uh, unreported, and also underappreciated evidence of hundreds of civilian casualties that were kept secret uh, during the U.S. war in Cambodia, uh, most of them from 1969 to 1973, the years that Henry Kissinger provided, uh, presided over it. And, uh, and these remain almost entirely unknown to the American people today. Uh, a, a key to this reporting was uh, previously unpublished interviews with more than 75 Cambodian witnesses and survivors of U.S. military attacks. And speaking with them uh, revealed new details about the long-term trauma uh, borne by survivors of the American war there. So taken together, uh, this adds to the list of killings and crimes that, uh, that Henry Kissinger should, uh, even at this very late date, uh, in his life, uh, be asked to answer for. And uh, Nick, could you talk a little bit about the the uh, the, the military documents you found uh, I, I, in your articles? I was uh, uh, I was quite surprised to dis discover, although I guess it's been re reported previously, that Kissinger himself was uh, taping or transcribing conversations that he had with the president and and other officials uh, about the war in uh, uh, in Cambodia. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, I wrote a, a short sidebar about this. Uh, people know about uh, Nixon's uh, White House taping. Uh, what really laid him low uh, is in the Watergate scandal. But uh, but most people don't realize that Kissinger was also uh, taping uh, all his phone conversations. And you know, he had a, a group of aides that transcribed these. And you know through these transcripts, uh, you can see uh, you know, Kissinger's, uh, you know, how, how hands-on he was with his policies in, in Cambodia and how you can see him relaying orders from, from Nixon, uh, you know, some, uh, some white house, uh, officials that I spoke with, uh, who were privy to these conversations at the time, uh, were often worried that, uh, that president Nixon was, was drunk uh, during some of these conversations, he was slurring his words and uh, and giving orders to, uh, in in one case that I focus on, uh, you know, attack, uh, you know, anything it, or it was uh, to to send anything that flies on anything that moves in Cambodia, basically attack everything with uh, planes and helicopter gunships. And you can see the order come right from Nixon. Nixon pass it down to his uh, military aide, Alexander Haig. And then uh, I was able to show that, uh, that you could see the palpable effects in the field that uh, just after these orders came down, uh, helicopter attacks uh, on uh, Cambodia went uh, sky high. They tripled over the course of, of the month after this call. So you could really see the direct effects of, uh, of Kissinger uh, in the White House and how it affected Cambodians on the ground. I want to start with your article, uh, how you start your article in Cambodia. At the end of a dusty path snaking through rice paddies lives a woman who survived multiple U.S. airstrikes as a child, round-faced and just over five feet tall in plastic sandals. Mias Lorne lost an older brother to a helicopter gunship attack and an uncle and cousins to artillery fire. For decades, one question haunted her. I still wonder why those aircraft always attacked in this area. Why did they drop bombs here? Can you elaborate on this? And I want to say for our radio listeners, for television, we're showing photographs that you have, an incredible um, gold mine of uh, photographs that you took when you uh, made these visits. Talk about these details, the specific stories. Yes, uh, you know, Mies Lorne's uh, story and, and the, the suffering that uh, that she endured, the trauma that she's lived with all these years, uh, it like like so many of the stories that I heard in Cambodia, really really stuck with me, and um, you know, and 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 her question was one that I heard again and again. Uh, Cambodian uh, villagers in these these remote uh, villages on the border with Vietnam, uh, they had no idea why they were attacked. Uh, one day, American aircraft uh, just started appearing overhead. Uh, they had no reference, uh, frame of reference for why this was happening. Uh, they didn't understand it, uh, but uh, they, they soon came to fear uh, these machines. And for years on end, uh, they were terrorized by them. Uh, I actually took her question uh, to Henry Kissinger when I tried to, to confront him with questions for this article. And I asked him to, to answer uh, the, the question that she had asked me, why did they attack here? And, uh, and Kissinger uh, responded with sarcasm, uh, anger, and, uh, and stomped off. Uh, you know, he, he was able to beat an easy retreat and, uh, and, and save himself from this questioning. But, uh, but 
Cambodians like uh, like Mies Lorne, where, you know, didn't have any sort of uh, easy means of escape. You know, there was uh, another village that I, I visited and um, uh, I have some photographs from that as well. Uh, these were taken by by my wife, uh, Tam Terse, who reported this along with me. And uh, there was a village that was mentioned in U.S. documents. Uh, they mentioned an attack on May 1st, 1970. A helicopter circled a Cambodian village. Uh, the Americans had a phonetic spelling of it called Moroan. But there was no village in Cambodia called Moroan. It's, it's not a Cambodian name. But there was one called Moroan on the border. And we set about trying to find it. We got close and we spent uh, two days driving around local roads asking for directions. Uh, we finally turned off the highway onto a red dirt track that cut, cut through some lush farmland. It then ended with a footpath, and it took us into this village. Uh, I quickly found the village chief, and I, I read him uh, the excerpt from the documents that uh, during this attack, 12 villagers were killed, five were wounded. This is from U.S. records. And after the assault, uh, survivors fled their village, said, and they uh, went to another one called Kantut. So uh, when I asked him about this particular attack, it was like many Cambodian villages that I visited. Uh, the, he was he was baffled by it. They'd endured so many airstrikes over the years. Uh, he, he couldn't remember one single strike. But when he thought about the date, he told me that's right. He gestured toward an area at the edge of the village and said uh, they attacked uh, intensely at that time. And then everyone here fled for Kantut. So I knew that we had the right place. And uh, this village chief, a man named Shen Hang, uh, lost his mother, his father, his grandfather, a nephew, a niece and, uh, and other more distant relatives to airstrikes. Uh, he and several other survivors told me about relentless attacks. And as he talked to me, his eyes reddened and then they, they went vacant. And, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he sunk to his knees and, and moved to a far corner of the room. And, you know, it, it, uh, you know, I, 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 I let him be, uh, he eventually returned to the conversation, but, uh, this was the type of trauma that I encountered again and again. It, it had been decades, uh, but the, this, this trauma wrought by Henry Kissinger's policies, was still so amazingly fresh and, and palpable in all of these villages. And Nick, uh, the the U.S. bombing campaign and the war in Cambodia was uh, followed, obviously, by the uh, the uh, the rise of the Khmer Rouge and also the genocide that the rest of the world associates more with Cambodia than than anything else. I'm wondering, you're reporting what connection, if any. Uh, between uh, the uh, uh, this bombing, this massive bombing campaign for which U.S. officials have never been held uh, responsible and the rise of the Khmer Rouge. Sure. I mean, uh, of course, the Khmer Rouge is, is culpable for the genocide in Cambodia and the, the two million deaths. Uh, but uh, as you as you mentioned, it's been long overlooked uh, just how destabilizing the U.S. bombing was. There was such displacement of, uh, of Cambodians uh, within their own country, uh, such trauma caused by uh, uh, the, the U.S. attacks, these relentless attacks and uh, tremendous quantities of, of bombs dropped. 
uh, that the Khmer Rouge used all this uh, as a recruiting tool. Uh, they went around the villages and said that the only way to make this stop was to join their movement, which before the U.S. bombing was a really a small fringe movement of just thousands of people. Uh, by the end of the U.S. bombing, the Khmer Rouge numbered 200,000 people. Uh, and I mean, this this the U.S. attacks were the centerpiece of, of their uh, recruiting drive. And it, uh, you know, un- unfortunately, it worked uh, all too well. And. Uh, so, you know, uh, President Nixon and uh, and Henry Kissinger uh, certainly uh, played a, a key role in enabling this genocide to happen. In 2016, during an event at the LBJ Library, Henry Kissinger was asked to respond to those who call him a war criminal. I, I think the word war criminal should not be thrown around in the domestic debate. It's a shameful it's a reflection on the people who use it. As Henry Kissinger turns 100 years old on Saturday, in addition to Nick Terse, who's written this astounding series in The Intercept, um, headline Blood on His Hands, we're joined by the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Greg Grandin, author of the book Kissinger's Shadow, The Long Reach of America's Most Controversial Statesman. Greg's latest article is headlined, Henry Kissinger, a war criminal still at large at 100. Can you take off from where Nick Terse um, left off, Greg Grandin, and tell us how, uh, though so many have come under a microscope like Nixon and his whole group in the White House, uh, Kissinger somehow escaped this by the establishment media, though um, independent media has long been fiercely critical of him. Tell us Kissinger's full story, Greg. Well, it would take a lot more time than we have to tell Kissinger's full story is turning on years old. Uh, I think that what, what's what's interesting is that, I, I mean, Kissinger is a war criminal, but there are lots of war criminals. I mean, the, the people who conducted, the, as the as Jeff Sachs talked about, the Iraq war, are, you know, can be held culpable for the destruction of a, of a country in an illegal war. What's 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 interesting is that in some ways the, the crimes are ongoing. I mean, you know, there's many, many unexploded ordinances in, in Laos and Cambodia that are still killing people. So the, the crimes are, uh, well, not of the past, but they're the present. That said, I think that the best way to think about Kissinger isn't necessarily as a war criminal. I think that in some ways that shuts down debate. Kissinger as a personality uh, is so oversized, he eclipses his context. I think Kissinger is, Kissinger's life actually has a lot to teach us about how we got to the point where we are, that in way that, 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 again, Jeff Sachs talked about this, that this, this multi-fronted, never-ending, endless war and military-industrial complex. Now, Cambodia... The bombing of Cambodia was done in secret for five years. It was a covert operation. Um, people know that, but I, I don't think it was mentioned. And, and the reason it had to be covert was because it was illegal. It was illegal to bomb. We weren't, a, we weren't at war with, with Cambodia. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, um, 
it wasn't a, a country that the United States had 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 was had declared war on or was at war with. Um, and and the the reasons why the the excuses that Kissinger has given for a five year long bombing campaign that that caused enormous damage, including bringing to power the most eliminationist extremist uh, cadre within the Khmer Rouge and leading to the genocide, was that it had it was to eliminate safe havens. It, it was an act of self defense. This is now taken as a common practice. This is basically fundamentally what the entire U.S. war on terror is authorized to do, to go into any country and drone and bomb and conduct military operations, some we know about, some we don't know about, but as a matter of course. So we don't do it in secret. So Kissinger's trajectory from Cambodia, from being the the architect of the secret campaign to bomb a country the United States wasn't at war with, to the state we are in now, governed by a national security state, is 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 what I think is most instructive about Kissinger's life and most important about him, other than describing him as a war criminal, which which he is. And Greg, why do you think that he remains such a significant figure? Uh, uh, as you mentioned, he escaped all of the the scandal of the Nixon years and went on to be a, a highly influential figure, not only in uh, the actual political world, but obviously uh, in, in the media as well. And he was always uh, referred or almost by the corporate press as a revered figure in, in American foreign policy and national security. Yeah, the press loved him, and he was very good at playing the press. Especially, uh, he was very good at at, uh, at weathering Watergate. His fingers were all over. He he basically pushed Nixon to set up the plumbers because he was obsessed that Daniel Ellsberg, who released the Pentagon Papers, had information about Cambodia. Cambodia Cambodia threads through all of this, um, and and Kissinger was instrumental in 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 pushing Nixon to set up the, the covert operation that, that went into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office and went into and went into the Watergate Hotel because he was he wanted he wanted to he wanted to basically take down Ellsberg and, and Kissinger survived that basically because he wasn't he wasn't a he didn't seem like the thugs that Nixon had around him you know Haldeman and Ehrlichman with the the Prussians they were called and 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 the and um, and the press really kind of fell for the gravitas that he projected and they were looking for somebody that they could trust that they can they can hang something on and 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 still have faith in 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 the national and uh, in, in 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 the institution of the presidency executive branch and Kissinger was very attuned to this he played people like Ted Koppel very well um, and then and then what's interesting about Kissinger though more than anything we know about his eight years in office he was national security director and secretary of state. Uh, under Nixon and Ford for a full eight years, uh, Secretary of State for the last couple of those years, um, and and we know we have we have documents we have we have you know Kissinger has, himself has released has has declassified has given his archive to Yale, but it's what what happened after uh, when he becomes a kind of sage pundit. 
a bipartisan pundit, that Bill Clinton rehabilitates Kissinger as a way of giving him a certain seriousness in foreign policy that as a governor of Arkansas he didn't have. So he, he rehabilitates him for the Democratic Party. Um, and then Kissinger founds, of course, Kissinger Associates. And so he's out of office now for what? For 76 to now is, you know, a half a day, 50 years. And, 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 and during that time, he, his Kissinger Associates has been a kind of premier concierge service for the global elite. It's, uh, it's broken, it basically broken the privatization of national industries in Latin America, in Eastern Europe, in Russia. Uh, he's, he's a key player in all of these movements. We have no information about any of that, right? That, and it's arguably more consequential in some ways. I mean, maybe not, maybe. I, I guess, I guess the, the, the actual war crimes were, were when he was in office for eight years. But there is this, there is this black hole of his role as 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 a, as a as a consultant to the to the to the to the global elite during this con- very consequential moment in which an enormous amount of wealth tr- transferred from from the bottom to the top and and Kissinger was deeply involved in that he helped broken Africa for example uh, he told he told Clinton that that Clinton had political capital to do only one of two things this first year. He could either pass Hillary Clinton's national health program, or he could push for NAFTA. And he advised him to push for NAFTA, and Clinton did. And we got NAFTA, and we didn't get a health care expansion, which I think says a lot about about the, 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 the post-Cold War trajectory of the United States and how we got I to wanted where to we go quickly to the 2016 Democratic presidential debate in Milwaukee when Senator Bernie Sanders criticized his opponent Hillary Clinton's relationship with her fellow former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger and cited Kissinger's role in Cambodia. In her book and in this last debate, she talked about getting the approval or the support or the mentoring of Henry Kissinger. Now, I find it rather amazing, because I happen to believe that Henry Kissinger was one of the most destructive secretaries of state in the modern history of this country. I am proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. I will not take advice from Henry Kissinger. And in fact, Kissinger's actions in Cambodia when the United States bombed that country, overthrew Prince Sihanouk, you know, created the instability for Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge to come in, who then butchered some three million innocent people, one of the worst genocides in the history of the world. So count me in as somebody who will not be listening to Henry Kissinger. So that was presidential candidate Bernie Sanders versus presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. And then you have the late celebrity chef, Anthony Bourdain, who once said, once you've been to Cambodia, you'll never stop wanting to beat Henry Kissinger to death with your bare hands. You'll never again be able to open a newspaper and read about that treacherous, prevaricating, murderous scumbag sitting down for a nice chat with Charlie Rose or attending some black tie affair for a new glossy magazine without choking. Witness what Henry did in Cambodia, the fruits of his genius for statesmanship, and you'll never understand why he's not sitting in the dock at The Hague next to Milosevic. Now, those were the words of Anthony Bourdain. 
And I want to get your comment on this, Greg, and then Nick Terse. Yeah, well, again, Cambodia, the centrality of Cambodia in this transition, transitional period of the U.S. national security state and its importance, you know, the, 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 the human damage and costs and pain and suffering is, is overwhelming to think about. But more, more kind of stepping back and thinking about its role in, 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 in the, the kind of trajectory of U.S. power. Um, one thing we didn't talk about is Kissinger's role in, in the October surprise of 1968. The New York Times just ran uh, an article more or less confirming Reagan's role in, 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 in the October surprise regarding the uh, Iranian hostages. But, but Kissinger, you know, Kissinger in the 19... 19- 50s and 60s was a Rockefeller Republican. He was he understood himself as a liberal Republican, and he was shocked when Nixon got the got the got the nomination in 1968. He thought his political career was over. But then he re- re- reached out to the Nixon campaign, and he said, "You know, I got, I got contacts in 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 the Johnson campaign. I can let you know what's going on." In the, with the with the peace talks in Paris that were that were hoping to wind down the war and might have brought you been given Humphrey the presidency, and Kissinger passed on information that the Nixon campaign then used to scuttle those talks, and 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 then once he was appointed, he was awarded he was awarded with that by being appointed national security advisor, and then once he came into office, he had to figure out a way to restart the the peace talks because because Nixon promised to end the war. So what can you do? You just scuttle the peace talks. How do you restart them? Well, one of the one of the not the stated justifications, but one of the just one of the reasons why he started bombing Cambodia and became obsessed about Cambodia was he was trying to kind of project a certain kind of madman theory to the North Vietnamese, that, that the Nixon administration was so crazy, they would start bombing Cambodia, and maybe this would bring them back to the negotiating tables. Of course, it didn't, and the war dragged out and for another, another five years for no reason. It could have ended in 1968. It could have ended, you know, and, 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 and millions of lives were lost, Vietnamese, tens of thousands of lives were lost in the United States, all as a result of, of, this, of, this, of this moment, this first October. Surprise in 1968. And again, Cambodia playing a central role in, in that history. Nick Terse, we just have a minute and we want to give you the last word after this massive investigation you've done and documents you've uncovered and people's voices that haven't been heard before. Yes. Uh, and I wanted to bring it back to the Anthony Bourdain quote and, and just offer up one case that I chronicle. And this is from the U.S. records. Americans shot up a village uh, with helicopters using machine gun fire rockets. And then uh, South Vietnamese forces, an American officer landed. They began looting this village. Uh, An American officer stole a Suzuki motorbike and hauled it onto this helicopter. Other Americans noticed that there was a young Cambodian girl, maybe five years old, who was shot and bleeding, lying on the ground. They wanted to, uh, to take her for medical care. But the officer who dragged the motorbike on board said negative. They were weighed down by the bike and they had no room. And they left this girl uh, there to die. Uh, This happened after Henry Kissinger gave that order uh, to uh, anything that flies and anything that moves. So this is Henry Kissinger's legacy. And this is what Anthony Bourdain was talking about. 
Intercept reporter Nick Terse will link to your four-part series, including the piece Blood on His Hands, Survivors of Kissinger's Secret War in Cambodia Reveal Unreported Mass Killings. And we want to thank Yale University professor Greg Grandin, author of the book Kissinger's Shadow. We'll link to your new article, Henry Kissinger, A War Criminal Still at Large at 100. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.